Sometimes we need a word of comfort. Those times when we've been battling an illness, perhaps when we feel overwhelmed by work or unappreciated. Maybe we've been walking through a season of doubt in our faith journey. You, you get the, the gist. And sometimes we need a word of correction. It's those moments where maybe we've been feeling sorry for ourselves at the detriment of the work that God has been calling us to do. Maybe we have said things or posted things on social media that we should not have. Maybe we have been living inconsistent with our faith profession. You get the gist. In 1 Thessalonians, the people needed a word of comfort. It was a, it was a time in which they were asking difficult questions of Paul. It was a time in which they were um, facing persecution. That persecution um, continues into 2 Thessalonians. But um, Timothy had gone to, to see how things were and report back to Paul. And when he came back, one of the questions that they had for the apostle was, what happens to our loved ones after they die? And so they needed a word of hope. They needed a word of comfort. And yet, by the time Paul writes 2 Thessalonians, uh, the people in that church needed a word of correction. Some misunderstandings, some false teachings had begun to um, grow in the midst of that fellowship about some of the teachings that Paul had pointed out in 1 Thessalonians. And so a linchpin passage concerning the message that he has to challenge the people in Thessalonica comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So we continue in our series of 66 books, 66 messages, landing here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it is from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only it that now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all the power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, 
in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So ends the reading of God's word. Last week we talked about end times. This week I talk about end times. Next week I'm not talking about end times. But the doctrine of end times matter. It matters in giving us proper hope for the future, and it matters for giving us a proper focus for the present. Just recently, we put a basketball goal in the backyard for the kids, but we had noticed um, we have a little patio set out there with an umbrella that I guess we haven't opened in some time. And we had noticed that there were some wasps that were kind of going up in the umbrella. So we did not want the kids to be too active back there until we had ensured that the wasp issue was resolved. So I called the neighborhood bug man, Randy Saunders, and I asked Randy, do you have any raid or something to that effect? And he did, so he came over to help me with the problem. Now, maybe you have heard the story, I once caught a fish this big. Well, you know, I told Randy that it felt like there were like 84 wasps that had been up in there, but I'm telling you, it's not this big. There were at least 20. And um, they were just falling down. He would spray up that raid, they'd fall down, and even like little larvae or something fell down. We had a mecca of wasps up in that umbrella. Now, I did not know exactly what to expect, but we had seen signs of wasps, so I deemed it important enough to address the situation. Now, I don't know everything that we are to expect with regards to the second coming of our Lord, but believers should know and anticipate certain signs that we are to look for prior to that second coming. And Richard Bauckham says that it means we ready ourselves. How do we ready ourselves? We ready ourselves by remaining faithful in God's word, and by being faithful in the way we live our lives according to what God teaches in that word. When John Wesley was asked what he would do on a particular day if he knew that Jesus Christ was coming back that night, John Wesley said exactly what I planned to do already. Wow. If you knew Jesus was coming back tonight, what would you do today? Would you live your life exactly the way you anticipated and planned to do already, like John Wesley talks about? That is a response which reflects one who properly understands the return of our Lord. It is someone who lives his or her daily life by the song we sang, The Refiner's Fire. How we live in the present should be shaped by what we know about the future. 
The Greek word for gathering together in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, is only used in the New Testament twice. Once here, and another time in Hebrews 10, verse 25. In Hebrews, the exhortation is to faithfully assemble and worship in order to stir one another up to love and good works in this present kingdom. But Paul's use of the Greek in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1 has in view Christians gathering together to worship the Lord in the coming kingdom. In other words, when will believers of every generation, of every tribe, of every culture, of every race assemble together in Christ's presence? I think the answer is straightforward enough at his return. And last Sunday, I made my contention that Jesus would come back and rapture his saints post-tribulation. It is a debated perspective, but one that I want to just highlight a little bit more this morning from our text. The word apostasia or apostasy found in verse 3 literally means defection or to depart from. Individuals who embrace the pre-tribulation rapture view interpret this use of the word to express the time in which the church will depart from the earth prior to the Antichrist's appearance. The problem with such a view as I see it is that in every other usage of that word, whether in the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering of the Old Testament, or in the Greek New Testament, the word is always referring to departure from the faith. So Paul is laying out a clear sequence of events to combat the false teaching that had begun to germinate in Thessalonica that the rapture had already happened or that it would happen without any significant sign of the times. Paul says, do not be deceived because a great departure from the faith in conjunction with the Antichrist must occur before Christ raptures his bride. My interpretation of the end times matters in three crucial ways. For one, it means that we as believers should be preparing ourselves to endure severe persecution, not to escape it. Are we readying ourselves? Further, as Paul made known in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3, it means the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night for unbelievers, but it should not come as such for believers. We should know something of what to expect before Jesus comes. Randy and I knew that there were wasps up in that umbrella. We did not know how many, but we knew they were up there, and we had some signs that indicated that truth. Are we readying ourselves in light of the signs of the times? Finally, if we remain to endure the great tribulation... We do not need to fear that we were never truly Christians who somehow were left behind. 
Now, the way in which I understand Paul's words are closely linked to the way I interpret the passage that we read from Daniel chapter 11 earlier in the service. Some 350 years after Daniel's prophecy, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes would come into power. Antiochus would reign over Syria from 175 BC until 164 BC. He was not the true heir to the throne, but he temporarily took possession of the throne by false pretenses. And once he was enthroned, he began to persecute the Jews severely. He wanted to eliminate all traces of Judaism in order to end the line by which the Messiah would come. This ruler made the Samaritans address him as God, giving himself the tag Epiphanes, or God manifest. He was utterly without faith in anything, and as a result, he was completely lawless. Nothing held his ruthlessness in check. In fact, Antiochus plundered almost all the temples of idols, but he especially spoke boastful and blasphemous words against the one true God. And so he desolated the temple in Jerusalem, and that led to the historical Maccabean revolt. It was shortly after this revolt that Jesus Christ was born into the world. The historical person of Antiochus Epiphanes, who Daniel prophesies about, is the precursor to the man of lawlessness to whom Paul speaks. Antiochus gave himself the designation of God manifest. So too will the coming Antichrist. Antiochus declares himself as having rights to a throne that does not belong to him. So too will the coming Antichrist. Antiochus reigns for a short length of time and brutally persecutes God's people. So too will the Antichrist. Antiochus desecrates the Lord's temple. So will the coming Antichrist. In the way that the first coming of Christ was preceded by a period of great apostasy, so too will a great apostasy take place before Christ's second coming. And still, so many interpretive difficulties arise from this text. Who exactly is the man of lawlessness that Paul references? What does it mean that the son of perdition will sit in the temple of God? In what way or ways is the power of lawlessness already at work? And who or what is restraining this man of lawlessness? These textual issues prove remarkably difficult because in verse 5, Paul alludes to something that he had told the Thessalonians back in Acts 17 when he had planted the church and he had instructed and taught them and things then, but he did not feel the need to repeat in this letter because they already knew what he had taught. That makes it kind of challenging for the church today. What we know is, is that Paul does say that the son of perdition will take a seat in the temple of God. I assume that the Antichrist's desecration of the temple will be more spiritual 
and likely political in nature. We do not know for certain that the power of the Antichrist lawlessness will play out in this way or in this way or in that way, but what we do know is that it's already at work. Second, John 2 verse 18 says that the Antichrist has already begun its appearance. How? Without question, doctrinal heresy in the church that continues to arise more and more. Without question, cultural and political trends that are moving further and further away from the things of God. And so what restrains the coming of the Antichrist? That has caused significant debate. I have read at least eight different views on that issue. I can tell you that it seems to me that for a study of Revelation, there's going to come a time in which things are at such a place where people will not come to faith any longer. That might suggest that at the coming of this great tribulation, there's tribulation and the coming of the great tribulation, when the Holy Spirit perhaps is no longer guarding and providing common grace upon a world that is full of destructive forces, it could be at that point that the Antichrist appears. I don't know. What I can tell you is that Augustine, a much smarter man than me, wrote in the fifth century a book called City of God, and he said this, I admit that the meaning of this completely escapes me. In other words, he has no idea, and really none of us do. And it's also, while it's maybe not good to get caught up in debates, because I want to say very clearly, you do not have to agree with this pastor's view about a post-tribulation rapture. You can believe in a pre-trib rapture. You can believe in a mid-trib rapture. You may be one of those individuals who does not believe in a rapture. But what we know for certain is Jesus is coming back. And it does us no good to try to figure out who the Antichrist is. In 1933, with the rise of fascism, speculation about the Antichrist increased. And there's an author, Arno Gabelin, a noted evangelical leader and editor of the magazine Our Hope. He wrote these words. The editor has no use for day and year setters, nor has he any use for figuring out the duration of the times of the Gentiles. Nor has he any sympathy with men who prophesy that Mussolini, Hitler, or any other person is the Antichrist. It is a morbid condition which seems to suit certain minds. We wonder whom they will name next. At any rate, why should a Christian have any interest at all in the coming man of sin? We have nothing to do with the lawless one. Our interest must be in Christ 
and Christ and Christ alone. Gadeline's thoughts echo the main focus of Paul when correcting the false teaching that had arisen in 2 Thessalonians. The only reason the apostle ever mentions the man of lawlessness is to do what he always does, to turn our eyes to Jesus. And what does Paul want us to see? He wants us to see that our fate rests in one thing and one thing only. Have you trusted the gospel before it's too late? Have you turned your eyes upon Jesus? For if you have responded to the love of Christ that is freely offered through the truth of the gospel, Paul says this in verse 8. That lawless one who will be revealed, the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time in exposition here, in exegesis of this text. I'm going to say one thing and one thing only because it's really quite clear and only the breath of his mouth, Jesus will destroy the Antichrist. At the breath of his mouth, boom, Christ wins. And that is what we need to know about the end times. I'm bringing a perspective, it is a perspective. It is not one that I can tell you from this pulpit that is right. It is just a view that I offer. But I do not offer a view on this. I say it with clarity once more. Christ wins. So, what should you and I do? Turn our eyes upon Jesus. Do you need a word of comfort in the midst of some persecution that you may face? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Grant is here again this morning. Thank you for being here. Grant Grant leaves for college on the 29th. He's going to a fine Christian school, but that does not mean that as he leaves home and goes into that setting that there won't be ideologies and things of that nature that is thrown at him that's not consistent with what God's word says. I would say to Grant and to every other student who's leaving for college, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Keep your eyes there. And perhaps we need correction. Maybe we've grown apathetic or complacent in our Christian walk. Jesus even talks about it. It may come a time where people are like, well, maybe he's not really coming back or why is he taking so long? And so all of a sudden, you know, they might you know, not be all that geared towards how he wants us to live. 
Do not grow apathetic or complacent. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. If your soul seems weary and troubled, I tell you this morning, turn your eyes back upon Jesus. And that is our hymn of response today. Hymn 413. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you need to do that today in some way, the altar's open, but you don't need an altar to turn your eyes upon Jesus. You just need a heart that says he's my king. Let's stand together as we sing hymn 413.